In the seance room presents The Singular Death of Morton by Algernon Blackwood Read by Mark Wall Dusk was melting into darkness as the two men slowly made their way through the dense forest of spruce and fir that clothed the flanks of the mountain. They were weary with the long climb, for neither was in his first youth, and the July day had been a hot one. Their little inn lay further in the valley among the orchards that separated the forest from the vineyards. Neither of them talked much. The big man led the way, carrying the knapsack, and his companion, older, shorter, evidently the more fatigued of the two, followed with small footsteps. From time to time he stumbled among the loose rocks. An exceptionally observant mind would possibly have divined that his stumbling was not entirely due to fatigue, but to an absorption of the spirit that made him careless how he walked. "'All right behind,' the big man would call from time to time, half glancing back. "'Eh? What?' the other would reply, startled out of a reverie. "'The pace too fast.' "'Not a bit. I'm coming.' And once he added, "'You might hurry on and see to supper if you feel like it. I shan't be long behind you.' But his big friend did not adopt the suggestion. He kept the same distance between them. He called out the same question at intervals, and once or twice he stopped and looked back, too. In this way they came at length to the skirts of the wood. A deep hush covered all the valley. The limestone ridges they had climbed gleamed down white and ghostly upon them from the fading sky. Midway in its journeys, the evening wind dropped suddenly to match the beauty of the moonlight, to hold the branches still so that the light might slip between and weave its silver pattern on the moss below. And, as they stood a moment to take it in, a step sounded behind them on the soft pine needles, and the older man, still a little in the rear, turned with a start, as though he had been suddenly called by name. "'There's that girl again,' he said, and his voice expressed a curious mingling of pleasure, surprise, and apprehension. Into a patch of moonlight passed the figure of a young girl, looked at them as though about to stop, yet thinking better of it, smiled softly and moved on out of sight into the surrounding darkness. The moon just caught her eyes and teeth, so that they shone. The rest of her body stood in shadow, and the effect was striking, almost as though head and shoulders hung alone in mid-air, watching them with this shining smile, then fading away. "'Come on, for heaven's sake!' the big man cried. There was impatience in his manner, not unkindness. The other lingered a moment, peering closely into the gloom where the girl had vanished. His friend repeated his injunction, and a moment later the two had emerged upon the high road with the village lights in sight beyond, and the forest left behind them like a vast mantle that held the night within its folds. For some minutes neither of them spoke. Then the big man waited for his friends to draw up alongside. "'About this valley of the Jura,' he said presently, "'there seems to me something rather weird.' He shifted the knapsack vigorously on his back. It was a gesture of unconscious protest. "'Something uncanny,' he added as he set a good pace. Oh, "'But extraordinarily beautiful,' 
Well, it attracts you more than it does me, I think, was the short reply. The picturesque superstitions still survive here, observed the older man. They touch the imagination in spite of one's self. A pause followed, during which the other tried to increase the pace. The subject evidently made him impatient for some reason. Perhaps, he said presently, though I think myself it's due to the curious loneliness of the place. I mean, we're in the middle of tourist Europe here, yet so utterly remote. It's such a neglected little corner of the world, the contradiction bewilders. And then, being so near the frontier too, with the clock changing an hour, a mile from the village, makes one think of time as unreal and imaginary. He laughed. He produced several other reasons as well. His friend admitted their value and agreed half-heartedly. He still turned occasionally to look back. The mountain ridge where they had climbed was clearly visible in the moonlight. "'Odd,' he said. "'But I don't see that farmhouse.' "'Where we got the milk. "'It ought to be easily visible from here.' "'Hardly. "'In this light.' "'It was a queer place, rather, I thought,' he added. "'He did not deny the curious, suggestive atmosphere of the region. "'He merely wanted to find satisfactory explanations. "'A case in point, I mean, I don't like it quite. "'That that farmhouse. "'Yet I'm hanged if I know why. "'It made me feel uncomfortable.' And that girl appeared so suddenly, although the place seemed deserted. And her silence was so odd. Why in the world couldn't she answer a single question? I'm glad I didn't take the milk. I spat it out. I'd like to know where she got it from, for there was no sign of a cow or goat to be seen anywhere. Well, I've swallowed mine, in spite of the taste, said the other, half smiling at his companion's sudden volubility. Very abruptly then, the big man turned and faced his friend. Was it merely an effect of the moonlight, or had his skin really turned pale beneath the sunburn? I say, old man, he said, his face grave and serious. What do you think she was? What made her seem like that? And why the devil do you think she followed us? I think, was the slow reply, it was me she was following. The words, and particularly the tone of conviction in which they were spoken, clearly were displeasing to the big man, who already regretted having spoken so frankly what was in his mind. And with a companion so imaginative, so impressionable, so nervous, it had been foolish and unwise. He led the way home at a pace that made the other arrive five minutes in his rear, panting, limping and perspiring as if he had been running. "'I'm rather for going on into Switzerland tomorrow or the next day,' he ventured that night in the darkness of their two-bedded room. "'I think we've had enough of this place, eh? What do you think?' But there was no answer from the bed across the room, for its occupant was sound asleep and snoring. "'Dead tired, I suppose,' he muttered to himself, and then turned over to follow his friend's example. But for a long time sleep refused him. Queer, unwelcome thoughts and feelings kept him awake, of a kind he rarely knew and thoroughly disliked. It was rubbish, yet it made him uncomfortable so that his nerves tingled. He tossed about in the bed. I'm overtired, he persuaded himself. That's all. 
The strange feelings that kept him thus awake were not easy to analyse, perhaps, but their origin was beyond all question. They grouped themselves about the picture of that deserted, tumble-down chalet on the mountain ridge where they had stopped for refreshments a few hours before. It was a farmhouse, dilapidated and dirty, and the name stood in big black letters against a blue background on the wall above the door, L'Archenille. Yet not a living soul was to be seen anywhere about it. The doors were fastened, windows shuttered, chimneys smokeless, dirt, neglect and decay everywhere in evidence. Then suddenly, as they had turned to go, after much vain shouting and knocking at the door, a face appeared for an instant at a window, the shutter of which was half open. And his friend saw it first, and called aloud. The face nodded in reply, and presently a young girl came round the corner of the house, apparently by a back door, and stood staring at them both from a little distance. And from that very instant, so far as he could remember, these queer feelings had entered his heart. Fear, distrust, misgiving. The thought of it now, as he lay in bed in the darkness, made his hair rise. There was something about that girl that struck cold into the soul, yet she was a mere slip of a thing, very pretty, seductive even, with a certain serpent-like fascination about her eyes and movements, and although she only replied to their questions as to refreshment with a smile, uttering no single word, she managed to convey the impression that she was a very managing little person who might make herself very disagreeable if she chose. In spite of her undeniable charm, there was about her an atmosphere of something sinister. He himself did most of the questioning, but it was his older friend who had the benefit of her smile. Her eyes hardly ever left his face, and once she had slipped quite close to him and touched his arm. The strange part of it now seemed to him that he could not remember in the least how she was dressed or what the colouring of her eyes and hair it was almost as though he had felt, rather than seen, her presence. The milk. She produced a jug and two wooden bowls after a brief disappearance round the corner of the house. Was, well, it tasted so odd that he had been unable to swallow it, and he had spat it out. His friend, on the other hand, savage with thirst, had drunk his bowl to the last drop, too quickly to taste it even, and while he drank, had kept his eyes fixed on those of the girl who stood close in front of him. And from that moment, his friend had somehow changed. On the way down, he said things that were unusual, talking chiefly about the chenille and the girl, and the delicious, delicate flavour of the milk, yet all phrased in such a way that it sounded singular, unfamiliar, unpleasant even. Now that he tried to recall the sentences, the actual words evaded him, but the memory of the uneasiness and apprehension they caused him to feel remained. And night ever italicizes such memories. Then to Capitol, the girl had followed them, it was wholly foolish and absurd to feel the things he did feel, yet there the feelings were. And what was the good of arguing? That girl frightened him. The change in his friend was in some way or other a danger signal. And more than this he could not tell. 
An explanation might come later, but for the present, his chief desire was to get away from the place and to get his friend away too. And on this thought, sleep overtook him heavily. The windows were wide open. Outside was a garden with a rather high enclosing wall, and at the far end, a gate that was kept locked because it led into private fields, and so, by a back way, to the cemetery and the little church. When it was open, the guests of the inn made use of it and got lost in the network of fields and vines, for there was no proper route that way to the road or the mountains. They usually ended up prematurely in the cemetery and got back to the village by passing through the church, which was always open, or by knocking at the kitchen doors of the other houses and explaining their position. Hence the gate was locked now to save trouble. And after several hours of hot, unrefreshing sleep, the big man turned in his bed and woke. He tried to stretch but couldn't, then sat up panting with a sense of suffocation, and by the faint starlight of the summer night he saw that his friend was up and moving about the room. Remembering that sometimes he walked in his sleep, he called to him gently, Morton, old chap, he said in a low voice with a touch of authority in it, go back to bed, you've walked enough for one day. And the figure, obeying as sleepwalkers often will, passed across the room and disappeared among the shadows over his bed. The other plunged and burrowed himself into a comfortable position again for sleep. But the heat of the room, the shortness of the bed, and this tiresome interruption of his slumbers made it difficult to lose consciousness. He forced his eyes to keep shut, and his body to cease from fidgeting, but there was something nibbling at his mind, like a spirit mouse that never permitted him to cross the frontier into actual oblivion. He slept with one eye open, as the saying is. Odours of hay and flowers and baked ground stole in through the open window, and with them, too, came from time to time sounds, little sounds that disturbed him without being ever loud enough to claim definite attention. Perhaps, after all, he did lose consciousness for a moment, when suddenly a thought came with a sharp rush into his mind and galvanised him once more into utter wakefulness. It amazed him that he had not grasped it before. It was this. The figure he had seen was not the figure of his friend. Alarm gripped him at once before he could think or argue, and a cold perspiration broke out all over his body. He fumbled for matches, couldn't find them. Then, remembering there was electric light, he scraped the wall with his fingers and turned on the little white switch. In the sudden glare that filled the room, he saw instantly that his friend's bed was no longer occupied, and his mind, then acting instinctively without process of conscious reasoning, flew like a flash to their walk of the day to the tumble-down chenille, the glass of milk, the odd behaviour of his friend, and to the girl. And the same second he noticed that the odour in the room which hitherto he had taken to be the composite odour of fields, flowers and night was really something else. It was the odour of freshly turned earth. Immediately on the top of the discovery came another. Those slight sounds he had heard outside the window were not ordinary night sounds. The murmur of wind and insects, they were footsteps moving softly, stealthily, down the little paths of crushed granite. 
he was dressed in wonderful short order, noticing as he did so that his friend's night garments lay upon the bed, and that he too had therefore dressed. Further, that the door had been unlocked and stood half an inch ajar. There was now no question that he had slept again. Between the present and the moment when he had seen the figure there had been a considerable interval. A couple of minutes later he had made his way cautiously downstairs and was standing on the garden path in the moonlight. And as he stood there, his mind filled with the stories the proprietor had told a few days before of the superstitions that still lived in the popular imagination and haunted this little remote pine-clad valley. The thought of that girl sickened him. The odour of newly turned earth remained in his nostrils and made his gorge rise. Utterly and vigorously he rejected the monstrous fictions that he had heard, yet for all that could not prevent their touching his imagination as he stood there in the early hours of the morning, alone with night and silence. The spell was undeniable. Only a mind without sensibility could have ignored it. He searched the little garden from end to end. Empty. Opposite the high gate he stopped, peering through the iron bars, wet with dew to his hands. Far across the intervening fields he fancied something moved, and a second later he was sure of it. Something down there, to the right beyond the trees, was astir. It was in the cemetery and this definite discovery sent a shudder of terror and disgust through him from head to foot. He framed the name of his friend with his lips, yet the sound did not come forth. Some deeper instinct warned him to hold it back. Instead, after incredible efforts, he climbed that iron gate and dropped down into the soaking grass upon the other side. Then, taking advantage of all the cover he could find, he ran swiftly and stealthily towards the cemetery. On the way, without quite knowing why he did so, he picked up a heavy stick, and a moment later he stood beside the low wall that separated the fields from the churchyard, stood and stared. There, beside the tombstones, with their hideous metal wreaths and crowns of faded flowers, he made out the figure of his friend. He was stooping, crouched down upon the ground. Behind him rose a couple of bushy yew-trees, against the dark of which his form was easily visible. He was not alone. In front of him, bending close over him, it seemed, was another figure, a slight, shadowy, slim figure. This time the big man found his voice and called aloud, "'Morton! Morton!' he cried. What in the name of heaven are you doing? What's the matter? And the instant his deep voice broke the stillness of the night with its clamour, the little figure, half hiding his friend, turned about and faced him. He saw a white face with shining eyes and teeth as the form rose. The moonlight painted it with its own strange pallor. It was weird, unreal, horrible. And across the mouth, downwards from the lips to the chin, ran a deep stain of crimson. The next moment the figure slid with a queer gliding motion towards the trees and disappeared among the yew trees and tombstones in the direction of the church. The heavy stick hurled whirling after it fell harmlessly halfway, knocking a metal cross from its perch upon an upright grave. 
The man who had thrown it raced full speed towards the huddled up figure of his friend, hardly noticing the thin wailing cry that rose trembling through the night air from the vanished form. Nor did he notice more particularly that several of the graves, newly made, showed signs of recent disturbance and that the odour of turned earth he had noticed in the room grew stronger. All his attention was concentrated upon the figure at his feet. Morton man, get up! Wake, for God's sake! You've been walking in... Then the words died upon his lips. The unnatural attitude of his friend's shoulders, and the way the head dropped back to show the neck, struck him like a blow in the face. There was no sign of movement. He lifted the body up and carried it, all limp and unresisting, by ways he never remembered afterwards, back to the inn. It was all a dreadful nightmare, a nightmare that carried over its ghastly horror into waking life. He knew that the proprietor and his wife moved busily to and fro about the bed, and that in due course the village doctor was upon the scene, and that he was giving a muddled and feverish description of all he knew, telling how his friend was a confirmed sleepwalker and all the rest. But he did not realise the truth until he saw the face of the doctor as he straightened up from the long examination. "'Will you wake him?' he heard himself asking. Or let him sleep it out till morning. And the doctor's expression, even before the reply came to confirm it, told him the truth. Ah, monsieur, your friend will not ever wake again, I fear. It is the heart, you see, Hera. It is sudden failure of the heart. The final scenes in the little tragedy, which thus brought his holiday to so abrupt and terrible a close need no description, being in no way essential to this strange story. There were one or two curious details, however, that came to light afterwards. One was that for some weeks before there had been signs of disturbance among newly made graves in the cemetery, which the authorities had been trying to trace to the nightly wanderings of the village madman, in vain. And another, that the morning after the death a trail of blood had been found across the church floor, as though someone had passed through from the back entrance to the front. A special service was held that very week to cleanse the holy building from the evil of that stain, for the villagers, deep in their superstitions, declared that nothing human had left that trail. Nothing could have made those marks but a vampire disturbed at midnight in its awful occupation among the dead. Apart from such idle rumours, however, the bereaved carried with him to this day certain other remarkable details which cannot be so easily dismissed. For he had a brief conversation with the doctor, it appears, that impressed him profoundly. And the doctor, an intelligent man, prosaic as granite into the bargain, had questioned him rather closely as to the recent life and habits of his dead friend. The account of their climb to La Chenille he heard with an amazement he could not conceal. But no such chalet exists, he said. There is no Chenille. A long time ago, fifty years or more, 
There was such a place, but it was destroyed by the authorities on account of the evil reputation of the people who lived there. They burned it. Nothing remains today but a few bits of broken wall and foundation. Evil reputation? The doctor shrugged his shoulders. Travelers, even peasants, disappeared, he said. An old woman lived there with her daughter and poisoned milk was supposed to be used, but the neighborhood accused them of worse than ordinary murder. In what way? Said the girl was a vampire, answered the doctor shortly. And after a moment's hesitation, he added, turning his face away as he spoke, It was a curious thing, though, that tiny hole in your friend's throat, small as a pinprick, yet so deep. And the heart, did I tell you, was almost completely drained of blood. In the Sounds Room presents The Singular Death of Morton by Algernon Blackwood, read by Mark Wall.